Maybe now you have some sense of the gravity, nay, the destiny of this moment. This is your birthright. Golly, I don't know what to say. Just say yes. Welcome to This Is Comp, a series of Discord and Rhyme mini-sodes where we go through compilations and box sets, artist by artist, song by song. Roll call! I'm Phil Maddox. I'm Mike DeFabio. And I'm John McFerrin. So today, we're continuing through Mike's compilation in defense of prog rock. Mike, what's the next song you got for us? The next song is by Jethro Tull. It's called Cross-Eyed Mary. Jethro Tull song for this comp was uh, a little tricky because the best example of Jethro Tull being a prog rock band is Thick as a Brick, and that song is an entire album long, so that wasn't going to work. Coward. And- <laughs> I mean, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to be inviting here. Clearly, the answer was a passion play. Yeah. <laughs> as inaccessible as possible. Uh and one of the, the rules I had set up for myself with this comp was I didn't want to I didn't want to include any uh, big major radio hits that everybody knows. So that that meant, you know, no Aqualung, which for a long time I didn't know was a, a big radio hit. I was very surprised to find out how many people know that song. Uh, but yeah, no, no locomotive breath, no teacher. It, it filters out a lot of things. I thought about including uh, a new uh, new day yesterday because I love that one, but it's a little it's too uh, they're still kind of midway between Prague and the blues. Yeah, it's very bluesy. Yeah, so I thought Cross-eyed Mary seemed like a like a good choice. Um, it's one of the the harder rocking Jethro Tull songs. Um, actually, Iron Maiden covered it in I think 1983 on the B side of the Trooper. And they didn't really have to change all that much, really. Although they they do add the the signature Iron Maiden. Dun 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 dun. dun. Oh, it's the 
Ian Anderson's vocal on this one is is honestly like kind of Hetfieldian in its in its harshness. Uh, but really, what what put it over the top for me is that intro with with the the Mellotron and the the fluttery flute. It's very very atmospheric and ominous. That's that's really what what put it into the the slot for me. But what do you guys think? So anybody who's listened to this podcast or has been unfortunate enough to be in the same room as me for 15 or so <laughs> minutes. Uh, they, they know how I feel about Jethro Tull. I like them an insane amount, even the stuff nobody should like. Lab, lab of luxury. So when you get to the stuff that everybody should like, then my opinion, you know, really goes through the roof. And Cross-Eyed Mary is a song everybody should like. It is, in my opinion, one of the absolute greatest hard rock songs of all time. Like, to me, you know, not to bag on Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin wished they could write a song that rocked this hard (laughs) in 1971. Mm -hmm. Just a fantastic song. Wonderfully arranged, too, because every verse has different stuff going on under it. Yeah. Like, you have a different riff. You have, like, a bass line that's different. Like, it's always interesting. It's not just beat you over the head with, you know, the cool riff, but it does beat you over the head just because it's such a pile driving song. And yeah, it's just absolutely fantastic. One of the best hard rock songs of all time, in my opinion. I would say that not only is it one of the best hard rock songs of all time, it's also one of the all time great track twos. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Not just as, uh, you know, not just as a a great track in the track two slot, but specifically like in the function of an album. Yeah. And part of what makes me say that is that, you know, Aqualon, again, it's it's one of Jethro Tull's uh, most famous songs. Uh, What one of the, you know, those ubiquitous songs you hear all the time on classic rock radio. It also has no flute. And that's one of Jethro Tull's defining features, which, you know, again, like it works really well as an album opener, but it's missing one of the things. So to have a track two that it immediately has the flute, but it also preserves the hard rocking power and grit of the first track, a way to be able to marry what you know about the band and what you've been introduced to in the first track. Right? That's an ideal use of a track two. It also has one of the scuzziest Mellotron parts that can possibly exist. Yeah. Like that Mellotron uh, part, you know, means no good for anybody. <laughs> it's just kind of leering and sneering at you. And, you know, the Mellotron, you know, typically is is used to give a sense of of symphonic majesty or uh, or even a sense of beauty. But like this is not a beautiful Mellotron. Like this is a really, you know, the, 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 again, this Mellotron is up to no good and, <laughs> and, and you know it. So yeah, everything they put together, this is one of the absolute all time great Jethro Tull songs and I absolutely love it. Yeah. That Mellotron bit really does a lot to complement the, yeah, nobody would write these lyrics anymore. <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> no. Yeah. Give, give these words a listen and. This song actually, at least in the Washington, D.C. area, actually did get played on the radio. Wow. Like at least like in the 90s on Classic Rock 94.7, The Arrow. Huh. But like I would always just be amazed. This song with this set of lyrics is getting played on the radio and leading into 
you know, Margaritaville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the big things that that separates Jethro Tull from from uh, most of the rest of the prog rock pack is you know usually, especially if you've if you've got a Mellotron, you, you sound like you're you know you're either in space or you're in a field, you know, on an English moor somewhere. And uh, no, nah, Jethro Tull are usually you're you're in the the dingiest parts of England. And it's full of shady characters. And I mean, especially on the Aqualung album, because yeah. that album really kind of caught them like by any normal means. It's a transitional album. Yep. Yeah. Like most of the time when people say, oh, this is a transitional album, they mean it as kind of a veiled insult. Oh, they're not as good as they would be. Hmm. But this album maintains all of the good stuff Jethro Tull were before but doesn't quite get into the crazy prog rock excess they would soon get into. I'm going to call it a passion play. <laughs> and it just captures them in an absolutely perfect moment. Well, yeah. one thing that that I always notice with this album, and but also really, really with this one, is Ian Anderson has a clearly different approach to singing on this one than he did even as recently as Benefit. Like the, it's it's a much more sneering piercing. Like he had yeah. more of a kind of a low, rah, 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 and now it's like, like as as he sings, and and you know that kind of that that sneer uh, would would kind of become one of their staples. But like again, like this is the first this album is the first time you hear that, and you hear it in Aqualon, and it's really really comes through in the way he sings on this track. Yeah, just the way he yells gets no kicks from little boys. Yeah, <laughs> such a great vocal performance. Yeah. That- the whole album, he's his delivery is just dripping with contempt. So what you got next for us, Mike? What I've got next is much more in the uh, in a field in space vein of prog rock. It's Yes with Starship Woo. Trooper. Woo! band that's been discussed on Discord and Rhyme before. It's a song that's been discussed on Discord and Rhyme before, but I wasn't there to talk about it, so now you get to hear me talk about it. You'll notice that uh, that clip I just played begins right where the clip in the Yes episode ended. <laughs> Very well done. So we, Conceptual we, continuity. Indeed. Yeah, we get as, as much uh, Starship Trooper spread out 
throughout the episode, throughout the You the say podcast. one bad thing about this song, and I'll beat you to death with your own legs. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm in luck because I have, I have nothing bad to say about this song. So my no radio hits rule meant uh, Roundabout was disqualified as much as I love that song. So I thought, you know, what, what else could we put on there? Siberian Katru, uh, South, South Side of the Sky. Now you got, you got to work up to that. And it, the ancient. <laughs> We're trying not to scare people away. Just Cowards. throw in the leaves of green snippet. Yeah. Does a lamb cry out before we shoot to death? It pretty much had to be Starship Trooper because it's a suite. It's a three-part suite, but it's less than 10 minutes long. So it's a, a really tight, compact suite that shows off all these different things that, that yes, do well. You know, you've got the uh, the big majestic opening section with that great, great John Anderson vocal melody, especially in that speak to me of summer section. I just love that. It goes into that uh, acoustic section, which is like whenever yes to something like that, it, it always makes me think of like Crosby, Stills and Nash in space. It's a prog rock hoedown. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, the big epic worm section at the end where Steve Howe just goes off. Uh, Two of them, in fact, one in each speaker, I think. It really does sound like you're about to engage in some epic space battle with a giant space worm that's like one of those things from Dune, except even bigger and in space. Uh, It's I remember the first time. I heard that and just realizing it was going to keep building like that. I remember exactly where I was, just like, you know, lying on the bedroom floor. Like, wow. And that wasn't even the first Yes album I'd heard. Everything to like about Yes is right there. If if you don't like it, I'd I'd recommend (laughs) not going any further with them. Uh, The the only thing I, I feel kind of bad about is that this is from before Rick Wakeman had joined the band. And he's kind of like he's prog rock personified, you know, the guy in a cape behind a gargantuan wall of keyboards, sometimes wolfing down curry. Some, sometimes there's there's a there's a guy dressed like King Arthur skating out on, on skating out onto an ice rink with a cardboard horse. It's just it's prog rock excess defined. So I, I feel a little bad about leaving him off the comp. Maybe I. If if I rejiggered things around, I could fit in something from Six Wives of Henry VIII or something. But I, I have no regrets about including Starship Trooper because it had to be this one. Uh, what's your take, John? So I don't know I, what you think about Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so I talked about uh, the Yes album and this song at great length in episode 25, which you should all go back and listen to if somehow you have not. I do want to mention something about this uh, that, that kind of ties into to what Mike mentioned. And it's something I didn't really go into a lot uh, when I talked about it back then. So I have heard a lot of live Yes recordings in my life. A lot <laughs> of live Yes recordings in my life. And I've heard Starship Trooper in a lot of Yes shows. And Starship Trooper is is always a showstopper. It's very often uh, the, the final song uh, of their encores. And even when it's uh, earlier in the set, you know, it's always a 
clearly a, a portion of the show where they're they're trying to like rope people back in. Maybe it'll come after like a. You know, Steve Howe has done uh, one of his acoustic numbers to give everyone else a break and they want to bring everybody back in. And it's like, you know, especially the worm section, you know, there's a lot of of instrumental firepower that gets deployed in a live setting. Um, You know, there's 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 some uh, funky for him uh, bass parts that Chris Squire would often throw when he developed uh, some some tricks over the years with it. Steve Howe, uh, you know, developed uh, some trademark gimmicks and, and Rick Wakeman. You know, had a, had a lot of things that he would do. And they're all great. And yet, for all of that, I still think that the studio version of Starship Trooper is my favorite version. Yeah. Even with, you know, in a more scale back version, even without Rick Wakeman. Because, you know, Tony K, you know, he, he, he was not great for a lot of things, but for just laying down big fat chords that lay that that produced tension. He was pretty damn good at that. Yeah, and, and the thing is, like you know, the, the the studio version of Starship Trooper is a for me is a great illustration of something that I think a lot of people don't get about prog rock is that sometimes prog rock is about the deployment of you know tremendous instrumental firepower, and sometimes it's about the threat hmm. of deploying a lot of instrumental firepower but not really getting there because you know this this original studio version it doesn't really go that far like just as steve howe is is really really starting to to get going you know he starts to fade out and there's a big organ swell of you know of troops coming up to to advance but you know this doesn't turn into the gates of delirium or anything and yet that really really works when you have chris squire just doing these Ascending boom, 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 just seemingly forever before uh, Steve Howe comes in. It's bliss. It's incredible tension. And you get just enough release um, to be a little satisfying, but also to leave you wanting more, which in turn is why this, the live versions can work so well is because they're not bound with template. Hmm. Um, like they're, they're able to, ha- to, to, to go off in different directions without having to be faithful to the original. So, yeah, this original... Uh, version of Starship Trooper. I, I love it. I've always loved it. Um, I'm, I'm really glad we got to talk about it again here. Well, the studio version shows something that, yes, are not particularly well known for, which is restraint. Yes. yes. Like the worm section never really goes crazy in the studio. It's always just menacing, but never, you know, hits like the big beat you over the head climax like that it would right. live, which I think is to the song's benefit. Agreed. And I say this without any real animosity towards live versions, but like live versions, like the one on Yes Songs, you know, Rick Wakeman is there for that and he's going <laughs> all over the end of it. <laughs> It's real cool, but it's a real different vibe from the studio version. It's like a distinct flavor that I like coming to time to time and every now and then. But ultimately, this studio version is what I'm always going to prefer. It's basically perfect. Yeah, yes, could throw a million notes at you when they wanted to, but they could also hold back and just build 
atmosphere, and they were really great at that too. Hal was generally very good at that. Well, yeah. How you the thing the thing about Hal is that he you know his his arsenal wasn't just the the electric guitar. Like he used acoustic guitar with country licks all the time. He used yeah. pedal steel all the time, and so like those by definition you know require a different approach. Uh, you know, then uh, again, going uh, 100% full firepower at all times. There's, there's something about hearing musicians who can just blast your face off holding back. Yep. All right. What's next on the agenda, Mike? Next is uh, something quite a bit more concise. This is the soft machine, and it's called As Long As He Lies Perfectly Still. talked about the soft machine on the podcast proper so i'll talk about them a little bit here the soft machine are one of the hardest bands to pin down in the whole prog rock scene over the years they managed to shed literally all of their original members and completely changed their style from psychedelic prog rock to hardcore jazz fusion today however we're here to talk about the early soft machine the Soft Machine were one of the earliest bands in the so-called Canterbury scene. They were founded in 1966 by guitarist Kevin Ayers, guitarist David Allen, who we'll be talking about much more later on in this series, drummer Robert Wyatt, and keyboardist Mike Ratledge. By the time they got a contract and released their eponymous debut in 1968, David Allen had already left the group to form his own weirdo prog rock collective, Gong. He was replaced by nobody, leaving the band without an official guitarist and making them one of the very few prog rock bands to not have a guitarist. By the time their second album, Soft Machine 2, which contains As Long As He Lies Perfectly Still, came out in 1969, Kevin Ayers had left as well, replaced by Hugh Hopper. One album later, the band would venture out into jazz fusion territory leaving their first two albums as completely unique items in their discography. Nothing else they made over the course of their lengthy career sounds anything like those first two records. The band did soldier on, eventually losing their last original member after 1976, Softs. After that point, the band entered this weird state of limbo, where the various band members would record albums under the guise of various side projects, and where the lineups were always completely unpredictable. The band eventually locked down a stable-ish lineup and started performing under the Soft Machine name again in 2015. But as for this song, like I said, it comes from Soft Machine 2, which is a real hard album to pull a song from. It's hard to pull an, a song from Soft Machine albums in general because yeah. their early stuff, it's like a bunch of like one-minute snippets. 
And their later stuff is a bunch of 20 minute long jazz fusion pieces. So how are you going to put them on a compilation like this? I think this is about as good as you could probably do, because it's still a song that I think doesn't work entirely well on its own, but it's still like a pretty cool song. It's got, you know, a lot of, you know, the sound that the soft machine are known for. What's your uh, rationale for picking this one, Mike? Well, as you mentioned, uh, soft machine are, are really... <laughs> tough to to pick one song from uh the album most people point to as like the definitive soft machine album uh is probably third and that's a double album with four sidelong songs on it so that wasn't gonna work they beat yes to it they did (laughs) uh and you know after that they were pretty much a full-on jazz fusion band uh the, the album this is from is basically a Wizard a True Star kind of situation where the songs are just all these tiny little snippets that slam into each other and don't really have they don't really have beginnings or ends. They just cut off and you're on to the next one. One of the tracks on this album is just them reciting the alphabet. Yeah. And another track on this album is them reciting the alphabet backwards. Yeah, and each one of those is about 10 seconds long. Uh, This is one of two tracks on the album that can kind of stand on its own. Uh, There's actually there's actually space between it and the other tracks. Um, and I do actually like it a lot. It's it's very short and it gets out of the way quickly, but it's it's a very intriguing uh, melody. The way it sort of crests at the end of each repetition and then kind of comes tumbling back down over this really interesting jazzy chord progression. I like it a lot. Yeah, you can really hear them starting to get jazzy here. <laughs> yeah. And you also get to hear uh, Robert Wyatt on lead vocals, who's kind of one of the one of the only uh big prog rock figures uh, who's still kind of considered cool. Like he shows up on a Bjork album and that's there aren't aren't too many prog musicians that Bjork would invite to appear on an album. pick something by the soft machine because they're such a big part of the story like we've mentioned them so many times on the podcast like you know they backed up sid barrett on the madcap laughs uh we even mentioned them on one of the pure moods episodes you can't get away from them so i like the soft machine a lot um i have their albums i think through seventh and plus a whole lot of live stuff uh from the from the 70s and i i think that uh the second album is my favorite of theirs. The thing about it is like, I always think of it in terms of the, the lawn suites that 
uh, start and end the album. And, you know, the, in the, in the past when I've listened to this album, it's like, oh yeah, there's these couple of, of one-off tracks, uh, in the middle. So when I had seen, when I saw that you, uh, put one of the one-off tracks on this, like, okay, I gotta, I gotta remind myself about this one. (laughs) And it's one that I find fascinating because it's one that almost like, like if you were to listen to this totally out of context and you're saying like, this is the poppy song on this album. <laughs> they look at you. It's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, but, but the thing is like in context, like it, it almost creates the illusion of, of being a pop song because like, even though, you know, there, there's these little snippets of, of melody. They can tell like if they had deliberately chosen to go a different direction, they could have, turn this into something more conventional, but they, they, they deliberately twisted it and, and, and mangled it. And sometimes when, when a band does that, you know, they, they can get it in their own way. They can uh, kind of trip over themselves, but the soft machine managed to do it in a way that, you know, it, it still feels natural. And like, I, I like the, the, uh, you know, the way that you had this, this, this warm vocal, just like kind of hovering over everything to, tie everything together but you also have the really really warm sound of the keyboards hmm. and between those two parts it, it manages to tie together again some really really gnarly co- chord sequences yeah um that you know in in theory might not work but they managed to make it work really well yeah something i forgot to mention when we were talking about uh the caravan track on here winter wine is just how much i love that there's like a signature distorted organ sound that these Canterbury bands had that I love a lot. And you you can hear it here as well as on that song. But you can really hear hear, hear kind of where they're going because I really do like the vocal part here. But it's also kind of not focused on. Hmm. Like John said, it just kind of hovers. Like you can't tell what the words are like without right. looking it up. Because it's actually about uh, Kevin Ayers leaving the band in right. their own kind of weird metaphorical-ish way of saying it. it's Sometimes it's metaphorical, and sometimes they're actually just mentioning him by name. It ain't Salisbury Hill. <laughs> but you can kind of tell at this point they're really moving away from traditional forms, which, again, by third, which is my favorite Soft Machine album, they'd completely ditched traditional forms. Now it's like, we're just jamming for 20 minutes now. We're just going to fill up a side and stop eventually. Yeah. But this kind of catches them at an interesting transitional point. And again, I think it's a very cool song. All right. What's our last track for today, Mike? Well, up till this point, I've mainly been trying to keep things as accessible and inviting as possible. And uh, here's here's the point where I I start to throw some some real weirdness at you. This is naughty boy. (laughs) Naughty, if you will. This is Knots by Gentle Giant. Tell me all Hurting, 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 hurting
She wants his one to her. He wants his one to him to get him. To get his one to her. She pretends to get she wants to him to get her. She pretends. this song <laughs> ho 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 gentle giant had to do it again <laughs> gentle giant formed in 1970 primarily centered around three brothers phil shulman Derek shulman and ray shulman along with gary green carrie manier and martin smith from the very beginning, Gentle Giant defined itself largely in terms of fluidity of roles. You could basically say Gary Green played guitar, Carrie Manier played keyboards, and Martin Smith played drums. But the practical truth was that everyone outside of the drummer had responsibilities that went five or six deep. Derek Shulman was a lead vocalist and the band's de facto frontman, but he also played saxophone, recorder, keyboards, bass guitar, and percussion. Phil Shulman was a lead vocalist, but he also played saxophone, trumpet, clarinet, recorder, and percussion. Ray Shulman, in addition to bass guitar and backing vocals, played trumpet, violin, viola, recorder, and percussion. Gary Green, in addition to guitar, played mandolin, recorder, bass guitar, and percussion. And Carrie Manier, aside from keyboards and occasional lead vocals, played cello, vibraphone, xylophone, recorder, guitar, bass guitar, and percussion. And they could have played more if they weren't so goddamn lazy. <laughs> yes. The band, which formed out of the wreckage of a late 60s British psychedelic band called Simon Dupree and the Big Sound. briefly included a keyboardist named Reginald Dwight, who would later take on the more famous stage name of Elton John, released its self-titled debut in 1970, showcasing an approach to music that Derek would describe years later as like a big funnel, combining pop, classical, rock, jazz, and whatever else they felt like throwing in there. Lying still Am I dreaming? Feel the chill, breath of fear. Evil fingers of the lingers, someone help me. would replace its drummer after both its second album, Acquiring the Taste in 1971, 
and its third album, the quasi-conceptual Three Friends of 1972, ultimately bringing in drummer John Weathers, who would stay with the band until his disillusion in 1980. And I, I must point out here, look up John Weathers on YouTube because he makes the best drummer faces you will ever <laughs> see. Yeah, they're incredible. The Gentle Giant song that Mike ultimately chose for this compilation is Knots, taken from their fourth album, Octopus of 1972. And this is both a great choice and a very aggressive one. Octopus is my favorite of the bands and a consistent fan favorite. And aside from the band's vocal and instrumental flexibility, I think it's an excellent illustration of the band's most defining features. First, Gentle Giant primarily writes short songs. Aside from the six-minute closer, all of the songs on Octopus fall in the three-to-five-minute range, and this is typical. Second, Gentle Giant songs, as often as not, are less about leisurely exploring a couple of interesting ideas and much more about throwing as many ideas at the listener as possible in a fairly short time span. And third, while many prog rock bands nominally bring in classical elements, but primarily manifest these in fairly superficial ways, centered around 19th century romanticism, Gentle Giant would frequently bring in elements of Baroque music and earlier. I would also make use of 20th century compositional techniques. And the music that ultimately resulted often felt like 20th century neoclassical works lightly dressed in rock elements. To this point, the four-part vocal arrangement of Knots is basically a madrigal, but with a harmonic crunch that makes it very contemporary. There are quite a few things that one could glom onto in this song, but for our purposes, I will focus primarily on two. First, one of the song's mid-song breaks is an instrumental reworking of the second voice in the quote-unquote verses. And it's every bit as effective of a trick here as it was when, say, Beethoven would take a great bass line and feature it in the development section in one of his symphonic movements. The lyrics are based around the writings of R.D. Lane, a Scottish psychiatrist who largely focused on mental illness and psychosis. And while the vocal arrangement doesn't make following the lyrics especially easy, I think it's worth taking a look at the final stanza. Quote, I get what I deserve. I deserve what I get. I have it, so I deserve it. I deserve it, for I have it. I get what I deserve. What I deserve. What I deserve, what I get. I have it, so I deserve. He tries to make her afraid by not being afraid. End quote. What the f***? <laughs> so yeah, uh, this isn't, this isn't, the nicest introduction to Gentle Giant that I, I could have provided for you. And it's not even probably my favorite Gentle Giant song, but I think it's the most Gentle Giant song. It's up there. Yeah, it's. But the thing is, I'm I'm not just uh, I didn't just throw this on here as a troll move. Like I genuinely love knots. It's got it's thorny and dissonant, but. It, it's not the whole way through. It 
resolves in a really satisfying way when they get to that. He tries to make her afraid by not being afraid section. And even the the weird dissonant parts, it's not just a lot of improvisational screek scronk. It's really smartly arranged. Some of the best arranging I have ever heard just in a song. The the vocal interplay, the instrumental interplay, the way the 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 melodies get passed around from instrument to instrument. Sometimes, you know, a xylophone will play two notes and a piano will play another two. You know, there's that xylophone solo in the middle. And, you know, as we've as we've talked about already in the, the Carnival of the Animals episode, uh, you know, nothing nothing beats a xylophone sounding like you're playing on some ancient creature's skeleton. If I were making this comp today, maybe I would swap in uh, something like On Reflection, which is another one of my favorites. And it it shows off their vocal and instrumental uh, arranging abilities in a a little bit more of an accessible way. Um, But at the same time, yeah, no regrets. So I think Knots, the first time I heard it, is the moment that I realized that my brain is irreparably broken <laughs> because I had heard from so many people that this song was dissonant and crazy and oh, it's difficult, but you got to stick with it, blah, blah, blah. So my first Gentle Giant album that I picked up at my college bookstore because it was the one that they had was Three Friends, which I love now. It might be the Gentle Giant album I play the most. But at the time, I thought it was okay. It never really clicked with me. I eventually picked up Octopus, and I knew going in that Knots was like this impenetrable, weird thing in the middle. And the first time I got to Knots, I thought it was one of the absolute greatest pieces of music I'd ever heard. I think (laughs) I played it 10 times in a row. Yep. Just like... I guess, like, I understand on a certain level why a lot of people would find this, like, so difficult. But I don't know. It's like, again, maybe it's just the way I think about music. Like, it's just so clever. Yeah. Everything is, like, so intricate. Everything works together. Like, it's dissonant, yeah, but, like, nothing feels pointless. It never feels like they're trying to say, like, well, just bang you over the head with a bunch of dissonant nonsense and, you know... We'll see how you can deal with that, which Gentle Giant would later do on tracks like So Sincere, which are Mm. which is much worse than this. But no, I just like I immediately thought that this was just spectacular and time has not dulled my opinion on that at all. It might be my favorite Gentle Giant song. I don't know. There's many candidates. Gentle Giant are a incredibly fantastic band, one of my all time favorites. Yeah, Gentle Giant is a band that I, I I liked right away. I loved Octopus right away. I liked them pretty much uh, from when I first started getting into them in college. And I think I like them more now. Like they're they, they just kind of just crept up and up. And like they're a band I'm always in the mood for. Hmm. 
like I, I find myself and, and like they have enough variation in what they do that like there are different uh, moves that my mind can be in for me to want something from them that aren't all the same. Like they're they're a really remarkable bet. Again, like if you're willing to approach like a very twisted kind of you know, not quite like a, 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 a mouse running through a maze approach to melody, but you know, sometimes not, not that. <laughs> and it's, it's really fat. It's a, they're a really fantastic band. And again, I love the song. I love this album. I, I think John and I are probably about the two like charter members of the giant for a day defense squad. <laughs> Cause that was their yep. quote unquote sellout pop album and everybody hates it, but I think it's pretty damn good. Oh, it's really good. <laughs> It's it's funny because in in most social situations I'm I will be by far the person who likes Gentle Giant the most if other people in the room you have, don't heard, have the box set <laughs> if other people in the room have heard of them Phil and John both <laughs> own the enormous Gentle Giant box set that has everything they ever recorded and a bunch of live stuff There's I only 2000 of them and <laughs> two of them are out Yeah I yeah I'm I'm such a poser I just have a bunch of their albums but they're just so much fun. It's I think Rich once described them as as sounding like th- their songs sound like pop songs sung by a, a bunch of gnomes. I think that really hits the nail on the head. Like it, it's hard for me to hear this music and and also simultaneously realize that they're it's it's made by a bunch of dudes. Like they sound like like a bunch of like cartoon gnomes in a forest somewhere making this weird ass music they're in a weird way because i know some people think they're one of the more inaccessible prog rock bands if you're like on the fence about getting into prog rock and you like bands like i don't know they might be giants yeah then you might dig gentle giant because they don't really do the stuff that prog rock is notorious for they don't have a tales from topographic oceans their songs get right to the point and do a ton of cool stuff i recommend very highly that you listen to all of the gentle giant you can yeah they never made an album longer than 40 minutes it's they always kept things concise yeah and that's the thing like they and the thing is like again their their albums are in the you know the 32 to 40 minute range and you know aside from a, a couple weaker ish ones later like in that 32 to 40 minutes at least like 15 of it is just going to be spectacular and there might be stretches of it that, you know, lag a little bit. But like if you have that much in a relatively short space over and over again, you're kind of great. Yeah. All right. And unless anybody has anything else, anybody got anything else? I think that's it. All right, man. That is it for today. Join us next time when we talk about Frank Zappa, Focus, The Nice and King Crimson. Roll credits. What do you call this record with all these songs? This is Kong. Yeah, yeah. This is Kong. Yeah, yeah. This is Kong. Yeah, yeah. This is. Thank you for listening to This Is Kong a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. You can hear back episodes of this series and our regular album-focused episodes at discordpod.com. And you can also subscribe to Discord and Rhyme on your podcast app of choice. 
The closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and is based on the song This Is Pop by XTC, originally written by Andy Partridge. You can find Kenneth's music at bandcamp.com. Editing and production is by Rich Bunnell. We'll be back with more prog in two weeks. So in the meantime, keep as cool as you can. is the story of the hare who lost his spectacles.